A new book reveals how to recognize and defeat the evil of communism and other totalitarian regimes like Putin's Russia. The Triumph of Good, Cain, Abel, and the End of Marxism, with commentary by the author, Thomas Cromwell. Chapter 11 A Bitter Twentieth Century Harvest Evil Unleashed Socialism, Communism, and Fascism. First section Radical Ideas Spawn Totalitarian Regimes. This chapter is devoted to examining the tempest of evil and destruction unleashed by the twentieth century application of nineteenth century socialist theories. As history demonstrates so vividly, once the falsehoods and deceptions of Marxist revolutionary theory were planted in the minds of power-hungry communist leaders, they would produce unprecedented conflict and chaos that led to a terrible harvest of bloodshed and misery. Fascist leaders too would adopt socialist theories to create their own monstrous regimes. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels claimed and I quote, the charges against communism made from a religious, a philosophical, and generally from an ideological standpoint are not deserving of serious examination, End quote. This wishful thinking aside, what can we say of communism as a practiced revolutionary and ruling ideology? Surely Marx and Engels would agree that if their theories were sound, the implementation of their theories should produce wonderful, prosperous, and happy societies characterized by perfect equality for all, with workers in particular enjoying the fruits of revolution. The history of communism has, however, produced exactly the opposite. Since its first full application early in the last century, Marxist ideology has produced nothing but brutal and bloody revolutions that have led to the establishment of oppressive dictatorships. In short, Marxism has been responsible for human misery, suffering and death on a scale never before seen in history. New section. A century of suffering. Indeed, in the 20th century, some 2000 years after Jesus brought the hope of a new and better world, we witnessed an unprecedented flowering of evil on a global scale. Societies founded on religion-based values were crushed by the rise of socialism, communism, and fascism. The French Revolution of 1789 and the Paris Commune of 1871 had started the ball rolling for violent revolutions in the modern era, but it was the addition of comprehensive revolutionary ideology, Marxism-Leninism, that made the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 so effective and lethal. For the first time, Marxism was applied in all its sinister and destructive force, and for the first time, the real fruits of Marxist theory and practice were put on display for the whole world to see. By the end of the century, the toll of Marxist revolutions and regimes was some 100 million deaths and countless millions more lives destroyed. Much of the 20th century would be dominated by socialism, communism, and their totalitarian soulmate fascism. 
These systems of government share certain tyrannical characteristics that cultivate and animate the very worst in human nature, dehumanization of others, violation of the rights of others, and the willingness to hurt, maim, and kill anyone standing in the way of progress. All these regimes were characterized by suppression of dissent, imprisonment of dissidents, torture and other forms of barbaric cruelty, and unbridled murder. As Winston Churchill put it in his characteristically effective English, communism and fascism were little more than two sides of the same coin, and I quote, There are two strange facts about these non-God religions. The first is their extraordinary resemblance to one another. Nazism and communism imagine themselves as exact opposites. They are at each other's throats, wherever they exist, all over the world. They actually breed each other, for the reaction against communism is Nazism, and beneath Nazism or fascism, communism stirs convulsively. Yet they are similar in all essentials. First of all, their simplicity is remarkable. You leave out God and put in the devil. You leave out love and put in hate. And everything thereafter works quite straightforwardly and logically. They are, in fact, as like as two peas. Tweedledum and Tweedledee are two quite distinctive personalities compared to these two rival religions. End quote. Following is a brief overview of 20th century totalitarianism and its human toll. News section Socialism. There's often confusion about the term being used here. Socialism is used to describe anything from a Scandinavian welfare state to the Soviet Union with its gulags. For our purposes, socialism with a lowercase s refers to democratic socialist governments that uphold private property rights and capitalism, but also provide extensive government social programs for healthcare, retirement, and other services. Socialism with a capital S denotes a politico-economic system based on state capitalism, central planning, a governing dictatorship, and few, if any, individual rights. In socialist states, these rights are sacrificed in the name of justice and equality for the people. In Marxist theory, this socialism is the improvement over capitalism that follows a violent revolution led by the proletariat against the bourgeoisie. It is the step between capitalism and communism. Although Hitler and the Nazis saw communism as their chief rival in pre-war Germany, they adopted a fascist variant of socialism that is discussed further on in this chapter. Marx and Engels believe that historical materialism, as the driving force of history, would naturally produce revolutions against capitalist governments, such that the appearance of socialist states was inevitable. However, the Paris Commune of 1871 demonstrated the need for a highly organized revolutionary movement if more than a brief upheaval was to be achieved. It was Lenin who saw this need most clearly, and he added to Marx's theory the need for a revolutionary party, a revolutionary putsch, and a dictatorship of the proletariat to guide the building of the socialist state and its transition to a true communist state. 
Thus, most communist revolutions were carried out in the name of socialism, and the main task of the post-revolution regimes that replaced capitalist governments was to build socialism. Remarkably, in a 1960 address to the United Nations General Assembly, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev described the wonderful world created by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, claiming, and I quote, there's no greater freedom for man than the freedom to build and develop an independent state and a socialist state like ours into the bargain. The Soviet people have already completed the building of socialism and have now turned to the building of communism, end quote. Khrushchev was comparing the Soviet Union with capitalist countries that had been colonial powers. He made the wildly false claim that the USSR had been a boon to formerly impoverished peoples that were forcibly assimilated into the Soviet Union. His words also revealed the arrogance of the USSR's foreign policy with its justification for supporting so-called wars of national liberation in the name of anti-colonialism and socialism, and its attempts to get the West to denuclearize when Moscow was developing its own nuclear capabilities as a matter of top national priority. In 1960, there were dozens of socialist states around the world, with new ones being added almost every year. None of them would prove successful economically, all would crush individual rights, and all but a handful would eventually abandon socialism. With few exceptions, regimes that include socialists in their official country name are of the radical Marxist type. For example, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, and the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. A popular variant is to substitute the euphemistic peoples for socialist as in the People's Republic of China, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, and so on. Throwing democratic or republic into a title hides the regime's total lack of democracy or republicanism. News section, communism. The actual nature of a communist state, as envisioned by Marx and Engels, is a mystery despite communists' claim to provide a real solution to the world's problems. In the abstract, communism is a system in which citizens give according to their abilities and receive according to their needs. But how does communism propose to get to that ideal state, especially if the socialist state itself has withered away? Who will make decisions about the use of property and capital? Who will assure that participation in production is according to ability and distribution according to need? Even a society of morally perfect humans needs some level of organization, and the people produced by socialist countries to date seem rather far removed from perfected men and women. Communism is mysterious, in fact, because it is a fantasy, a materialist dream of an imaginary world. Although most communist states disguise their real intentions with virtuous sounding names, the ruling parties of these states typically use communist in their names. Thus the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was ruled by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The People's Republic of China is ruled by the Chinese Communist Party.
and the Republic of Cuba is ruled by the Communist Party of Cuba. These parties have all committed atrocities on a massive scale in the name of creating communist states, always justifying their cruelty as necessary to achieve a Marxist utopia. In addition, political movements dedicated to creating communist states often use communists in their name to distinguish themselves from democratic socialist parties, which don't share their ultimate objective. Thus, the Communist Party of Germany was founded in 1918 as a radical offshoot of the ruling Social Democratic Party, which itself was the Marxist Party from 1891 to 1959. And the Communist Party of the United States was established in 1919 after a split in the Socialist Party of America in the aftermath of the 1917 Russian Revolution. A new section, the Soviet Union. After a revolt by angry citizens over unemployment and food shortages following Russia's disastrous defeat at the hands of the German army in World War I, Tsar Nicholas abdicated on March 15, 1917, and a provisional government was established. In July, Alexander Kerensky, then Minister of War, became Prime Minister. Kerensky, a socialist, was in favor of pursuing the costly war against Germany and had members of the last Tsarist government arrested for incompetence and corruption. Lenin opposed the war, promising peace, land, bread. He saw weakness in Kerensky's coalition government and on November 7th, October 25th in the old-style Julian calendar, the Bolsheviks mounted a coup against it. This started a five-year civil war in which the Reds ruthlessly eliminated rival reformists and revolutionary groups while pursuing a bloody war against the Whites, the forces loyal to the Tsar. The Reds crushed all opposition in Russia and neighboring states, paving the way for the official establishment of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics in 1922. The Communist Party of the Soviet Union would remain in power until 1991, when the USSR collapsed and the party was abolished. Winston Churchill described the arrival of Lenin in Russia, aided by the German government, which hoped with good cause that Lenin would take Russia out of the war, and I quote, Lenin was sent into Russia by the Germans in the same way that you might send a file containing a culture of typhoid or cholera to be poured into the water supply of a great city, and it worked with amazing accuracy." End quote. The salient characteristics of Marxist socialism were set in stone largely by Vladimir Lenin when he added his own practical elements to Marxist theory to make it capable of mobilizing revolutionary forces to seize and hold power. Lenin established the Bolshevik Party in 1898 as a radical faction of the Russian Socialist Democratic Labour Party to be what he would call the vanguard of the proletariat. It would become the Russian Communist Party Bolshevik in 1918 and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1952. Lenin introduced democratic centralism to the party a system of voting that kept any type of collective decision-making within the party, since only party members were ever permitted to stand for election. 
This system of democracy would be adopted widely by communist parties around the world. While in power, the CPSU practiced almost every type of evil imaginable, with waves of persecution, oppression, and purges that reached a crescendo in the 1930s under Joseph Stalin. Almost anyone could be accused of a crime against the state, arrested, tortured, sent to a prison camp in Siberia, or executed outright. There were hundreds of prisoner camps and forced labor colonies established by the Communist Party, as well as some 500 POW camps after World War II. According to the Black Book of Communism, some 20 million people died under Communist Party rule. Speaking of these huge numbers of victims tends to blur the actual extent and impact of the Communist horror. In a genocide called the Holodomor, some 6 million independent Ukrainian farmers, the Kulaks, would starve to death when they were forced to collectivize. Whole minority populations were forcibly transported from their native lands to remote regions of the Soviet Union, like Siberia. For almost everyone living in the USSR, fear was a normal part of life, spreading suspicion about everyone they knew and poisoning even close family ties. Anyone could be picked up by the authorities in the middle of the night for any reason, real or made up. They would likely be thrown in prison, tried and sentenced to prison camps in Siberia or execution. The laws were meaningless. Dialectic thinking and rationalization were used to justify any decision or action. Individuals were simply powerless in the face of government oppression. Even some of the founders of the Soviet Union, such as Leon Trotsky and Nikolai Bukharin, would fall foul of Stalin's secret police. Trotsky was chased across the world until caught in Mexico City, where he was killed with an ice axe by an agent of Stalin. In Moscow, despite international pleas for his life to be spared, Bukharin was sentenced to death for treason and shot, while his wife was sent to a labor camp. Their crimes? Falling out of favor with Stalin. A new section, Creation of the Soviet Empire. The aggressive nature of Russia's Communist Party was evident from the outset. When the USSR was established by treaty on December 30, 1922, there were four founding members, Russia, Ukraine, Belarusia, and Transcaucasia. By 1940, the number of USSR states had increased to 15 and included Moldova, the Transcaucasian states of Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, the Central Asian states of Kazakhstan, Gurkistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, and the three Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. All were conquered by the Soviet Red Army and forced to assimilate into the USSR. Further afield, the Soviet Union exported its revolutionary ideology and repressive methods of rule throughout the world. Largely because of American assistance through Lend-Lease during World War II, Moscow was able to withstand and reverse the Nazi invasion and four-year occupation. It then mounted an invasion of Eastern and Central European countries, several of which, notably Romania, Slovakia and Hungary, had fought with the Nazis. 
The Soviets set up client states in East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Albania and Yugoslavia, although these last two would forge policies that were often independent of Moscow. In Asia, Moscow switched its initial alliance with Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government fighting the Japanese to Mao's Chinese Communist Party and later backed Kim Il-sung's takeover of North Korea in 1948. Later too, Moscow supported the North Vietnamese in their war against the South. Their Pathet Lao allies in Laos and the North Vietnamese created People's Republic of Kampuchea in Cambodia. In addition, the USSR supported so-called movements of national liberation around the world, from Latin American countries, especially Cuba, to Arab countries and almost half the newly independent African states who gained independence from their previous colonial masters. The last Soviet conquest was of Afghanistan, which it invaded in December 1979, ostensibly at the request of the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. These successful communist insurgencies and conquests were supplemented by the activities of a network of communist parties in non-communist countries. The Communist Party of the Soviet Union recognized 95 communist parties worldwide and considered support for them a high priority. These included communist parties in West European countries and America. Many of these parties were directly controlled by Moscow through the Communist International or Comintern, which operated from 1919 to 1943. It was shut down by Stalin to calm the fears of his Western World War II allies who worried about Soviet expansionism. It was partially replaced by the Comintern in 1947, but this was also dissolved in 1956 when its activities were relocated to the International Department of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. As the Soviet Union inspired and backed violent revolutions across the globe, sent its armies to occupy countries and its agents to penetrate and undermine foreign governments, including those in West Europe and the United States, Moscow worked hard to maintain the pretense that it was merely acting on behalf of the people who appealed for its help and that it was deeply committed to peace. As typical of leftist movements and governments, Moscow made an art of blaming others for its own sins and those of its allies, always claiming it was not responsible for any of the atrocities perpetrated by its own government, by other communist governments, by Marxist national liberation organizations, or by Marxist terrorist groups. Beginning with the Seventh Congress of the Comintern in 1935, Moscow also became adept at disguising its real expansionist agenda by employing the United Front strategy. It would create or support fine-sounding initiatives and organizations in collaboration with credible, but ultimately gullible, individuals or organizations, all the while using those entities as Trojan horses to advance its own interests. Thus it ran the World Peace Council and infiltrated the World Council of Churches encouraged the nuclear disarmament movements and exploited detente to lull the West into believing that it really wanted peace in Europe when its actual agenda was to dominate Europe. 
It signed the Helsinki Accords in 1975 because they provided de facto recognition of Soviet boundaries in Europe and a basis for the Soviet Union to claim moral equivalence with the West. The real international intentions of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union are laid out in Vladimir Bukovsky's Judgment in Moscow, which reproduces transcripts from meetings of the Central Committee and Politburo of the party in which the top Soviet leaders openly discuss their strategy. A new section, China surpasses Russia in cruelty and destruction. The most important offshoot of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union was the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, founded on July 1, 1921, as a Marxist-Leninist party. Mao Zedong gained increasing influence in the party in the late 1920s when he became a guerrilla leader. He originally agreed with Marx in despising peasants, farm laborers, as a class, but he eventually came to see them as a better foundation for a revolutionary party in China than the much smaller Chinese proletariat, or factory workers. This difference in revolutionary focus would become a central feature of Maoism that distinguished it from the original theory. In 1931, Mao helped create the Jiangxi Soviet, the Chinese Soviet Republic, becoming its chairman. However, holding on to this republic proved untenable against the superior forces of Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang, and Mao initiated the long march of the CCP's Red Army, which would establish itself in Yan'an, in China's northwestern Shaanxi province. In 1937, the Communists made an official United Front Pact with the Kuomintang to fight the Japanese occupation. As in so many of these alliances, the Communists used a period of cooperation with their real enemy to gain territory and support in anticipation of the moment when they could seize power. See, for example, Nicholas Gage's book, Eleni, about how this strategy worked in Greece during World War II. In 1943, Mao became the unchallenged leader of the CCP. He continued to use the United Front tactic with Chiang Kai-shek while he consolidated power and cultivated the interest and support of international communists, including some key figures in the U.S. State Department and other American institutions. By the time Japan surrendered to the Allies on August 15, 1945, the Red Army had grown to a force of 1.3 million, supplemented by a militia of 2.6 million. At this point, it would change its name to the People's Liberation Army, or the PLA. During the war, it had used the fighting to take control of large swaths of the Chinese countryside gaining support from peasants by using guerrilla tactics against the Japanese occupiers. At the very end of the war, per an agreement with U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt made at Yalta, the Soviet army entered the Asian theater, defeating the Japanese in Manchuria. At this point, Stalin handed over weapons confiscated from the Japanese to Mao's forces, greatly strengthening their capabilities in their fight against the Kuomintang. In 1946, any pretense of an alliance between Mao and Chiang Kai-shek evaporated, and the country entered into an outright civil war, which ended in the defeat of the nationalists, who 
who escaped en masse to the island of Formosa, or Taiwan, where they established their Republic of China, based in Taipei. On October 1, 1949, the People's Republic of China was established on the mainland, with Mao as its chairman. Although Mao had made adjustments to Marxist theory by replacing the proletariat with peasants and the bourgeoisie with landowners and industrialists, Marxism-Maoism was just as cruel and murderous as the Soviet system. Rather like Stalin's 1932-1933 forced starvation of the Kulak farmers in Ukraine, from 1958-1962 to Mao forced farmers to contribute to the industrialization of China as part of the Great Leap Forward. Estimates of the death toll from this coerced industrialization which featured forced labor, torture, execution, starvation, and suicide, reached as high as 55 million Chinese people, making this the deadliest non-wartime campaign of mass killing in history. It is truly impossible to imagine the suffering this astronomical death toll represents, the fear, the terror, the horror of watching loved ones, including helpless infants, die from starvation. A gripping personal account of this famine and the later suffering of Chinese in the Cultural Revolution is found in Jung Chang's Wild Swans, Three Daughters of China. Later, in 1966, despite China's never-ending economic problems, Mao launched the Cultural Revolution to purge the country of impurities, its traditional beliefs, and establish Maoism as the ideology of the masses. Once more, communist efforts at ideological purification resulted in massive suffering and as many as 20 million deaths. In a truly grotesque twist, the CCP mobilized students for this anti-civilizational campaign. They turned against their own parents, teachers and neighbors, accusing them in public denunciations of betraying the revolution and committing a host of crimes against the state. The incitement to this cruel behavior by the CCP was intended to destroy the Confucian foundations of Chinese society, which were rooted in respect for parents, elders, and teachers. The abused and terrified victims were forced to make confessions and renounce imaginary wrong thinking on pain of death. The Cultural Revolution created hardened, callous creatures of the CCP regime. It would last 10 appalling years until Mao's death in 1976. The cost in human lives was enormous, but so too was the societal cost of destroying Confucian ethics and morality. The estimates of the total death toll inflicted by the CCP vary, but all agree that it is in the tens of millions. The Black Book of Communism estimates the total death toll for the two greatest crimes of the CCP the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution at 65 million. But many millions more have fallen victim to the CCP, beginning with a long civil war and continuing through the brutal persecutions that continue to this day. On July 1, 2021, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the CCP, the Epoch Times estimated that the total CCP death toll is 80 million. The Chinese Communist Party has never taken responsibility 
for its unprecedented slaughter of 80 million of its own people. A new section, The Evil of Communism's Global Spectre. The Communist Manifesto begins with this sentence, A spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. End quotes. Marx and Engels wrote their manifesto to dispel the mysteries surrounding communism, to publish their views, their aims, their tendencies, to use their own words. At the time, communism was indeed a specter, a dark spirit of evil possibilities. No longer. Since the beginning of the 20th century, the specter has become a reality, an unprecedented force for evil that has destroyed the lives of hundreds of millions of people around the world and continues to oppress hundreds of millions to this day. And although communism reached its global high-water mark in the last century, given the ascendancy of the CCP today, it could cause even greater suffering in this century. In the preface, we call the specter of communism a two-headed beast because it not only operates as a diabolical and soulless force that corrupts the beliefs, principles and politics of civilization, but because it also serves as the ruling ideology of totalitarian regimes, in particular communist China. The Soviet Union and China are the main examples of the evil of communism, but there are plenty of other examples of the harm wrought by socialism and communism wherever they have been tried. In 2021, China, North Korea, Vietnam, Laos and Cuba remain outright communist countries, while Cambodia, Venezuela and Nicaragua were all still ruled by dictatorial socialist regimes. In the Middle East, only the Assad regime in Syria continues in its socialist ways, albeit based on a new alliance with Russia instead of the USSR. Countries like Algeria, South Yemen and Iraq had all experienced the evils of socialism and rejected it. Across Africa, one by one, countries that had embraced communism as the answer to colonialism found that it was a disastrous economic system that brought cruel dictatorship and typically greater suffering than they had experienced under European rule. Nevertheless, the dream of a communist utopia lives on around the world. Although only a handful of communist countries remain, there are still communist parties in many countries, including most industrialized nations. A reflection of communism's durability is found in a Wikipedia listing of the 178 communist and other anti-capitalist parties that got representatives elected to parliamentary bodies in 84 countries over the past few years. Despite the dismal record of communism in the 20th century, die-hard communists still cling to the false promises of Marx and Engels in countries around the world. More serious than small communist parties scattered around the world, however, is Marxism's metastasizing into various neo-Marxist and critical theory offshoots. These typically claim to reject Marxism, or at least its Soviet legacy, but continue to offer the seductive promise of a better world through atheism and violent revolution, albeit a revolution now focused on destroying traditional social institutions, especially religion and family, in addition to the capitalist states. 
We will discuss some of these Marxist trends in chapters 14 through 16. A new section, Fascism, a 20th century brand of socialism. Often mistaken for the antithesis of socialism and communism, fascism is in fact a branch of the same socialist tree. It lacks the ideological underpinnings that have enabled communism to endure as a ruling ideology for decades, but it has the same characteristics as socialist and communist states, namely totalitarian government with centralized planning and denial of individual rights. One key difference is that while socialism and communism are overtly anti-religion, fascism often uses religion as a tool of control and repression. Fascism is not a global movement tied together by a common ideology. Rather, it is the name for individual statist regimes that manifest fascistic characteristics. These traits are typical of socialist and communist movements and states, as well as those officially labeled fascist. Fascism flowered in the 20th century when Mussolini came to power in Italy, Hitler did the same in Germany, and Franco won a civil war in Spain. In his seminal book, The Road to Serfdom, written in the late 1930s, Friedrich Hayek pointed out that Germany was the European country that advanced furthest towards socialism at the time. A key marker of this socialist tendency was the embrace of central planning, believed by many on the left to be the answer to the apparent failings of capitalism. Central planning was also considered essential for a war economy, and Hitler's Nazi party used it to pull Germany out of post-World War I hyperinflation, while simultaneously establishing a powerful Reich and preparing for revenge against Germany's rivals. Socialism was well entrenched in Germany by the time the Nazi party was established in 1919. The Social Democratic Party, the SPD, had been established as early as 1863 and adopted Marxism as its leading ideology in 1891. From the 1890s into the early 20th century, the SPD was the largest Marxist party in Europe. In 1914, during World War I, a radical Marxist faction of the SPD, headed by Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, broke away and formed the Spartacus League, named after the leader of the Roman slave revolt. On December 30, 1918, Luxembourg and Liebknecht established the German Communist Party. A new section, the Socialism of Nazi Germany. Hitler embraced many of the anti-capitalist and anti-bourgeoisie principles of German socialism, but he was also explicitly anti-Semitic and anti-communist, the latter in part because the rise of communism in Russia appeared to threaten Germany. A low-ranking officer in World War I, Hitler joined the German Workers' Party in 1919. Months later, in 1920, it would become the Nationalist Socialist German Workers' Parties. In German, the Nationalistische Deutsche Arbeitsparty, or NSDAP, otherwise known as the Nazi Party. The Nazis were aligned with the Freikorps paramilitary units which were formed largely of World War I veterans and used by the SPD-controlled Weimar Republic 
to suppress the nascent German Communist Party. To win the support of German industry, the Nazis would later downplay their anti-capitalism. As with communism, Nazism held a powerful attraction for young people. Hitler tapped into strong nationalist sentiments which drew on a long history of pan-German idealism. As the Nazi party grew, it capitalized on these sentiments, stoking them with bitterness towards the Allies, thanks to the harsh penalties imposed on post-World War I Germany by the Treaty of Versailles. Churchill captured the German romanticism of the Hitler Youth. I quote, I think of Germany with its splendid clear-eyed youth marching forward on all the roads of the Reich, singing their ancient songs, demanding to be conscripted into the army, eagerly seeking the most terrible weapons of war, burning to suffer and die for their fatherland." End quote. As seen with the fascist governments in Italy and Spain, when the Nazi government took power in 1933, it sought to co-opt religion to serve its purposes. In some of his earlier speeches, Hitler recognized Christianity as the foundation of German values. He also claimed to support Christianity as a way to distinguish Nazism from atheistic communism. His political rival in pre-war Germany and later his great enemy to the East. But Hitler's interest in the church was not to follow the teachings of Jesus, but to use it to support his regime. The dominant German evangelical church largely supported the Nazis, although a dissident confessing church insisted that Christians owed allegiance to God and scripture, not the Nazi party. Notable members of the confessing church were Martin Niemöller, who spent seven years in concentration camps, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed for his part in a plot to kill Hitler. Like Marx, Hitler drew on Darwin's theory of natural selection to justify his racist theory, albeit without direct reference to the British scientists. In his book, From Darwin to Hitler, Richard Weikart writes, and I quote, No matter how crooked the road was from Darwin to Hitler, Clearly, Darwinism and eugenics smoothed the path for the Nazi ideology, especially for the Nazi stress on expansion, war, racial struggle, and racial extermination. End quote. Richard Overy elaborates on this in his book, The Dictators Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Russia. And I quote Truth lay in natural science, and for Hitler that meant the truths of racial biology natural selection, racial struggle, identity of kind. Hitler was politically prudent enough not to trumpet his scientific views publicly, not least because he wanted to maintain the distinction between his own movement and the godlessness of Soviet communism. Nor was he a thorough atheist. His public utterances are peppered with references to God and spirit. For Hitler, the eschatological truths that he found in his perception of the race represented the real, eternal will that rules the universe. In the infinite value of the race and the struggle to sustain it, men find what they might call God, an inner sense of the unity and purposiveness of nature and history, 
Such views could be detected in the development of critical theory in Germany before the First World War, which suggested that God should be experienced as inner feeling rather than as external morality. What Hitler could not accept was that Christianity could offer anything other than false ideas to sustain its claim to moral certitude. End quote. A new section. Hitler's Cain nature is embodied in Nazism. As with Marx, Hitler was driven by personal hatreds and biases. These he channeled into a ruling ideology that combined state Christianity, anti-Semitism, socialism, and German nationalism in an unholy alliance that was responsible for tens of millions of deaths and the ruin of millions more lives. Above all, Hitler was driven by an overwhelming lust for power. He was willing to put his anti-communism aside to enter into the August 1939 Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with Stalin, in which they agreed to jointly carve up Poland. This gave Hitler the green light to invade Poland, which he did on September the 1st, starting World War II. Hitler exploited a long-standing virile streak of anti-Semitism in Christianity. This anti-Semitism was based on blaming the Jews for killing Jesus. The Nazis went further, blaming Jews for Germany's woes and dehumanizing them as a race. However, this hatred of the Jews was totally counter to Christianity's mandate, which in following the teaching of Jesus required believers to embrace all people, regardless of their beliefs or heritage. Jews are older brothers in faith to Christians, and the extermination of six million Jews by Christian Germany was a gross abuse of Christianity's heritage and a total repudiation of its true mission. Hitler's fascist Germany and Stalin's communist Russia were all too similar. Both leaders were obsessed with power and both attached no value to human life. They created two evil regimes on a world scale. Nazism would fail with the defeat of Germany, but communism would continue to expand after World War II, as Stalin engineered communist takeovers throughout Central and Eastern Europe and continued communist expansion throughout the world. A new section, why communism is more dangerous than fascism. As we have seen, the essential difference between communism and fascism is that the former is based on a comprehensive ideology while the latter is little more than a theory of dictatorship that is practiced by strongman rulers. History has shown that communist regimes are generally much more durable than their fascist counterparts because the ruling ideology of communism enables a succession of communist leaders, whereas a fascist state typically dies with its dictator. Benito Mussolini was in power for 20 years from 1925 to 1945. Adolf Hitler was in power for 12 years, from 1933 to 1945. And Francisco Franco was in power for 36 years, from 1939 to 1975. All three regimes shared several features, including dictatorship supported by a personality cult, single-party rule, ruthless suppression of opposition, demagoguery, co-opting of religion, 
and the dehumanization and devaluation of individuals by an all-important state. These features of fascism are also evident in communist dictatorships as well, which is why Hitler and Stalin loomed over 20th century history as such similar monsters. But the list of communist dictators who exemplified fascist behavior is considerably longer than the short list of fascists above. It includes Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev and Leonid Brezhnev in the Soviet Union, Mao Zedong in China, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, Fidel Castro in Cuba, Enver Hoxha in Albania, Nicolae Ceausescu in Romania. The long list goes on. Many communist regimes have lasted for decades. The Soviet Union was formally established in 1922 after five years of revolution and civil war. It lasted until 1991, about 70 years. The Chinese Communist Party took power in 1949 when it established the People's Republic of China, 28 years after the CCP's founding in 1921. The PRC turned 70 in 2019. The Cuban Revolution brought Castro to power in 1959, and the Communist Party of Cuba remains in power to this day, 62 years on, despite a neighborhood of largely democratic countries, with the exception of Venezuela and Nicaragua. All of these regimes were responsible for massive violations of human rights, for the destruction of innocent lives, and for the creation of horribly grotesque regimes masquerading as authentic governments. How silly and misleading it is, then, to attach the fascist label to leaders of democracies who have been freely elected and who advocate for individual rights and the rule of law. A new section. Lessons that must never be forgotten. In summary, 400 years after the Protestant Reformation and a little over 100 years after the French Revolution, the 20th century witnessed the advent of the worst regimes to ever appear on earth. The stark realities of socialism, communism and fascism were on full display and they were clearly visible for any reasonable person to recognize as evil. Only the resolute resistance of Britain, America and other allies stopped a total victory for totalitarianism. Given their record in the last century, there's no excuse for anyone today to believe in these pernicious and destructive ideologies. Yet millions of people still do. And while today fascism is almost universally decried, socialism and communism are still able to seduce the naive with their utopian promises. It should not be necessary to point this out, but humanity cannot afford to go back to the evil days of totalitarian regimes causing massive suffering and destruction around the world. How wrong it is then that so many people and institutions are enabling communist China's spectacular rise today. In the next chapter, we analyze the continued attraction to Marxist and neo-Marxist ideologies. And in chapter 13, we examine China's growing power and what lies behind its global ambitions. End of chapter.